the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You know, full disclosure, when they get into such parsing of language, your longest running and things of this sort, you, you got to know that when you kind of peel back the layers of all of that window dressing, it's just a polite way of saying an old guy. <laughs> well, not feeling all that old, but awfully happy to be with you for another edition of Lifeline here in this place every Tuesday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life and your world. We fixed to do more of the same today. Coming up a little bit Later on, we're going to explore some of the controversies surrounding the educational loan forgiveness that the president has put into place via executive order. And I guess there's a number of questions related to this. First off, if America can bail out the airlines, the railroads, the banks, and provide almost a trillion dollars in payroll protection loan forgiveness... Why not student loans? Then, of course, there's the other side of the equation, and that is, well, if we're going to forgive student loans, what about people that struggle to pay the mortgage or their property taxes or their income taxes, for that matter? Where do we draw the line? Will it make that much of a difference to those on the receiving side of the student loan debt forgiveness? And what about all those that have gone before them that paid off their loans or students that will graduate this year or next that don't qualify for this program. There seems to be multiple layers in which this is wrought with controversy, and you have to wonder if at the end of the day, this is less about helping people deal with financial challenges of the current state of the economy and more about, oh, I don't know, midterm elections coming up? We'll dive into all of that. Syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, Attorney and CPA Bob Zadek will join us to discuss coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. But I, I want to circle back to a subject that seems to be a regretful, common or reoccurring theme on this program, and that is ways in which parental authority, parental rights seem to be on the endangered species list here. Well, maybe if they were on the endangered species list, they would get more attention, but sadly not. But they definitely seem to have their days numbered. Uh, most recent was a proposal in California. California, California Senate Bill 866, that would have allowed 15-year-olds to make medical decisions related to receiving vaccinations without parental knowledge or consent. Wait, what? A minor? Oh, this would be the same state that doesn't allow your son or daughter to go to the school nurse and get an aspirin for a headache without your permission. 
But vaccinations and abortions, oh, all day long. And not only are they not compelled to notify you, but in fact, in the case of abortion services in California, it's illegal to disclose that to a parent. You've got to be kidding me. More on the story. Brad Dacus joins us, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Tell us a bit about uh, the genesis behind Senate Bill 866. And, Counselor, it's always good to visit with you. Well, thank you, Craig. It's uh, great to be on the program. Uh, yeah, this uh, this bill was uh, it was you know really a, a huge concern from from the start. Um, you know, we were very concerned that it could have actually passed. And the, the problem with it is that we're dealing with minors who may not really know about their medical history, um, giving consent without parents knowing about it to get injected with something, with a, uh, like a vaccine. And, of course, we've noticed, uh, you know, of late that there are, we now know that some vaccines are much more dangerous and can have much greater complications. Um, like, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the, the COVID vaccines, for example, can, uh, there's a lot of teenage boys that have, uh, inflamed hearts, uh, condition because of this. So there's, there's, and then they, the child themselves can have a, a, just a reaction to vaccines they may not even know about, uh, and they give consent and maybe it's to get pizza or whatever, uh, and then, uh, parents have no notice of it and then something happens. Uh, so this is, uh, would be a nightmare for many parents, especially, uh, with children with special medical needs and certain circumstances. And so we at Pacific Justice Institute, we had our senior staff attorney, Matt McReynolds, out of our Sacramento office uh, present a very well thought through uh, analysis of why this would have uh, serious ramifications potentially for minors and in the long run uh, undermine parental rights. Uh, we're very glad that we were able to push this back, and it, it went down in defeat. Now, in California, we have sort of a laundry list of required vaccinations for K through 12. Um, the state compels parents to make sure the students have been inoculated for diphtheria, tetanus, polio, hep B, uh, measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox. Most of us that are adults over the age of, of 50, no doubt, uh, went through a whole bevy of, of the shots that I just listed. Uh, but this is a little bit unusual in that it's not the state saying you need to be vaccinated in order to attend public public school, it's the state saying a 14 or 15 year old can make the decision to be vaccinated and the the parent is left completely out of the loop here. So I would imagine what happens here is let's say the child goes and receives the shot. Parents know nothing about it. Child doesn't disclose it. All of a sudden now your son or daughter has a reaction to it, which can happen. I've, I've had a reaction to a shot that wound, landed me in the hospital. And, and now all of a sudden now the parent is burdened with having to deal with not only an unknown reason why your child is having uh, a, a medical emergency, but then they also get stuck with the bill, all courtesy of the state of California, who's decided that you as a parent don't have the right to, to decide what goes on with your child's, your son or daughter's body. I don't, I don't get the, the, the thinking there. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, it, it's it's very unreasonable. It definitely skirts parental rights, creates a huge risk. Of course, not only to the minor child, um, you know, medically, and of course, there's unfortunately there's uh, you know there's several thousand of uh, minors who've had serious medical ramifications uh, just in the last few years with regard to vaccinations, uh, new vaccines. So uh, now we're dealing with you know parents having a financial burden as well. Uh, we at Pacific Justice Institute, we saw for what it was. Uh, and, and, uh, and among the bills that we 
we uh, contested. This was one of the ones that we targeted because we are a huge defender of parental rights, which is so much under attack. The good news I want to let people know is that uh, I say parents' rights are under attack tremendously. However, parents have never been more mobilized and more resolute uh, with regards to their rights. And there are so many across the nation, in record number probably, who are running for school boards. Uh, so stay tuned. I think we're going to see some real backlash after this November in a, in a positive way with parents finally speaking up. Well, especially when you add to the mix um, much of what's going on to try and uh, manipulate curricula. Uh, you know, we, we, we used to go from allowing the experts to decide what was best in terms of that approach to now we've got a, you know more political motivation as to what is not and is considered allowable for a student to be exposed to. Um, that that That's problematic. But I have to wonder from a from a broader perspective, you look at this on the face value and say, well, maybe misguided as it may be, the agenda here is, is undoubtedly to want to uh, uh, despair children from uh, the potential risk associated with, with uh, having, uh, having contracted COVID. But I have to wonder, given the subtle nature of the O&O, by the way, it doesn't require parental notice or approval, if this is not, in, in some sense, and it's speculation on my part here, but I'd love to get your, your, your viewpoint, Counselor, if this is perhaps part of actually the broader, deeper agenda that kind of says, you know, um, children of all ages are allowed to make their own medical decisions, be it the case to receive an inoculation for something like COVID, or even if they decide they want to engage in uh, body, um, well, I was say manipulation, probably mutilation, the better term, um, related to gender dysphoria, up to and including, of course, the, the, the sense that California has that abortion ought to be free and liberal and paid for by the state for, for everyone, not only California citizens, but even if you're not a citizen, and there should be no question or restrictions whatsoever, and I'm just wondering, is, is part of this perhaps part of that deeper mentality that, that suggests that there should be no, no guidelines, no guardrails at all for any age in the state of California when it comes to physical health decisions? Well, and other decisions as well. You're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, this is, we've seen this manifest itself in a number of, of different bills and, and laws uh, dealing with abortion. Um, and dealing with other kinds of issues, uh, like you just mentioned. So, uh, this is a part of a mantra to weaken the family, to weaken the rights of parents over their children. Uh, and, uh, and that's why, and we, we see this pattern play out, uh, by, you know, this, uh, Senator Weiner and, and others who push this kind of legislation. So, uh, you know, that's why we can test it on multiple, uh, levels as far as, uh, these challenges to parental rights. But, yeah, Craig, make no mistake, uh, with the legislature that we have in California and I think the governor, I think we're going to see these kinds of challenges uh, in the future, and we stand by uh, parents, and we at Pacific Justice will and see, will, will defend parents without charge uh, and on the legal front, but also fight this in the legislature as well in the future. Boy, in California, they just, uh, you know, once you think you've seen it all, by golly, California legislators always manage to one-up. Well, delighted at least that this particular bill got pulled, and rightfully so. That's an update on 
Senate Bill 866. Our thanks to constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, for that update. More information available on the web at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. When we come back, debt forgiveness or one big political ploy? We'll debate that issue as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the discussion. And I I mentioned to you at the top of the program we were going to be mildly on the controversial side today. And I I guess it really comes down to what your opinion is or whether or not you stand to benefit from the um, most recent aspect of largesse coming out of executive orders from the president. In this case, you've no doubt heard there's been much discussion, a new executive order issuing um, emergency orders. I'm not sure where the emergency is. But regardless, (laughs) issuing emergency clause to forgive up to $10,000 in student loans, 20 if you're the recipient of a Pell Grant loan, and uh, all of this one-time forgiveness to help students. Now, you look at this and say, well... You know, to play devil's advocate, we have helped out and bailed out the airlines, the railroads, the banks. Uh, We just had $742 billion in so-called COVID payroll protection loans forgiven. So why not help out students? Well, I guess then it begs the question, okay, where do we then draw the line? And if we're going to say, let's help out students with their student debt, why not homeowners with their uh, mortgages or their property taxes? Heck, why not all of us with with our income taxes? I mean, at, at what point do you draw the line here? And if we see the cancellation of $10,000 in federally held student loan debt, um, for borrowers that make 125 grand or less, which, by the way, is nothing to sneeze at, uh, where do we draw the line? And do we run the risk of creating a habit here for subsequent presidents who are eyeing midterm elections with perhaps an eye of suspicion in terms of their ability to maintain control over the House or the Senate and say, you know what, let's do another money giveaway and we'll get more people to vote for us. Now, I know that sounds terribly crass and awfully suspicious. Yeah, guilty as charged. Let's um, let's dig into this a little bit deeper, shall we? Joining me now is best-selling author, lawyer, CPA, syndicated talk show host. In fact, he hosts the longest-running libertarian talk show in America today. It's the Bob Zadek Show, heard locally on 860 AM, The Answer, Sunday mornings at 8 AM, and always an honor and privilege to have join us, Mr. Bob Zadek. Robert, welcome. Thank you, Craig. Uh, Very kind to invite me to join you once again. I'm going to be uh, a very rude guest, um, and I'll apologize in advance but it's not going to change my behavior. Uh, The way I'm going to be rude, I'm going to take your question, which is where do we draw the line, and I'm going to ask that we not talk about that, and I'll give you the reason. I'm going to be an ingracious host, and I'm going to say, no, there's a different question. So first, why do I object to your question? Because where did we draw the line means... Well, what Biden did was fine, except why not do more of it? Oh, poor us, we can't figure out who not to give money to. 
that's, in my opinion, and this is an opinion show, so we have the luxury of being able to offer opinions. In my opinion, no, the question is not where do we draw the line. The question is, as I look at it, it's whenever government gives a benefit to somebody, First of all, the government, the only source of the government's wealth, if you want to call it that, is money it took from somebody else. Yep, very true. The government has no other way to get money except by taking it away. Not That's not to suggest it's stealing, but many would, but I'm not even suggesting that. I'm not going there. I'm not a fringe kind of person. But the government takes money from people. So now... The government has our money collectively. So the question to me is not where do we draw the line, but rather where did the money come from, number one, that they're giving away, and number two, what is the detriment to what the government is doing? Because, you know, we learn in high school physics Every action has an equal but opposite reaction. We learn that. We all can recite it because it kind of makes sense. We learned it in high school. Everybody did. Okay. Which means every gift from the government is at somebody else's expense. And I would like to focus on who are the losers. So we have a discussion of both sides who lost and who gained and then we will weigh the benefits against the detriments collectively and see if the benefits outweigh the detriments and if you do that who pays Craig you I a good deal of your listeners in their taxes in the debts they paid back because they didn't think of waiting until the government forgave it. The people who made a decision to go to a community college and learn a trade rather than go to learn art history in Stanford, a useless, economically useless activity, economically useless for the most part. So there's a whole lot of what Frederick Bastiat uh, a journalist who wrote about brilliant uh, journalist who wrote about economics in the 1850s Frederick Bastiat gave us a phrase an economic concept called the unseen or the invisible who are the people who are invisible who are not obviously hurt but hurt nevertheless by the government's action and Let's see the unseen, see all the people who are hurt by this action, weigh it against the benefit, and then, Craig, anybody who gives it that minimal amount of thought has to conclude what a horrible idea. All right, let's let's kind of um, break this down in bite-sized chunks. First off, undoubtedly, anytime you have a case where there is a shifting of dollars from one line to the other, from one group to another, there's always going to be 
winners and losers. And um, I forget who it was that had the quote. I know that it's been misattributed to Franklin, but but somebody out there uh, years ago, I might want to say back in the 1800s, made the observation that the minute the electorate figures out that it can vote itself money, we're we're in serious trouble. And we're clearly on the precipice of that. I'm curious, Bob, from your perspective, and then we can unpack this deeper in terms of the, the winners and losers after the break. But from your perspective, when we think about all of the classes or groups of people that are out there that could, quote unquote, benefit and I'm using my air quotes here, benefit from financial relief of any sort. I mean, if we're going to say, well, let's help out students that are struggling to pay off their student debt, but they're presumably in their 20s or 30s and have a lifetime to figure all of that out, who's to say that it's not better to say, let's award a $10,000 cash payment to every senior citizen over the age of 70? After all, with inflation and the cost of of housing and and medicine these days, they could probably benefit from that $10,000 as well. And they're also a pretty active voting block. Do you have any sense in terms of this This feels terribly arbitrary? Why do you think the, the administration chose $10,000 student loan forgiveness as opposed to $10,000 gift to small businesses, or as I said in my example, to senior citizens? Well, it's obvious because the polling right now shows that um, Biden, who is the most senior of senior citizens on the planet uh, in terms of his behavior and his thought process, uh, is that Biden has lost huge amounts of ground in that voting block. And there's an election coming up, and he can't get it back by talking hip-hop kind of wouldn't come off as sincere. So how does he get it back? By giving them a a bribe, or if that word offends you, by doing something to curry their favor. And so they will think a bit more kindly of him, or they will see it is in their collective self-interest to vote for Biden specifically, he's not on the ballot, but progressives in general help them keep the House and the Senate because they will learn that's their meal ticket, that they won't get the money by voting for Republicans. So therefore, the message is clear. People respond to incentives. They do. uh, They behave in their self-interest. And it's clear to that voting block where Biden was doing much worse, according to polling, than he did two years ago when he got elected, and the Democrats need that voting block because they're losing the Hispanic vote, they're losing the Asian vote, they're losing suburban moms to some degree, so they're starting to lose their voting blocks they need to win, so it's that calculation. It's very simple. And uh, so that's the reason. When you ask why, that's the reason. Also, Biden felt he wanted to show that he keeps his campaign promises, and he campaigned on repaying, on forgiving student debt. He did that 
to curry the favor with the progressives. He made a promise to them, and he wanted to keep his promise, although his promise was more in the range of 50 grand, not 10 grand, but he kept enough of it. So the why is kind of easy, and you cannot be too cynical by judging behavior through a lens like that. Undoubtedly so. And, and let me bring full circle that, that quote that I shared, actually from Alexander Fraser Tyler, who was a professor of history at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And the exact quote just hits the nail on the head. Quote, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the people get this, until the people discover they can vote themselves largesse or money out of the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that democracy always collapses over a loose fiscal policy to be followed by a dictatorship. Close quote. Alexander Fraser Tyler, professor of history, University of Edinburgh. <laughs> kind of hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? We'll get back to more of our discussion and look at executive orders, voting money out of the public treasury for the benefit of votes and more. Bob Zadek, syndicated talk show host, our guest this afternoon. His show, The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. A timeout back with more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the discussion. We're talking about the recent executive order signed by President Biden using the um, an emergency clause that actually was tied into 9-11, if uh, memory serves me right, uh, that allowed for um, emergency, quote-unquote, debt cancellation in times of a national emergency. Now, ironic that uh, almost uh, within a two-week period of time of announcing this executive order, we've also had the administration announce that essentially the pandemic is over with. So I would suspect, poof, the excuse of doing this on an emergency basis has just disappeared. However, the election coming up in November has not, and it's a... Uh, our um, dear friend and guest tonight, Bob Zadek, is suggesting that's probably the bigger motivation here, not necessarily out of a, a, a sudden sense of compassion for um, young people struggling with student debt. And uh, Bob Zadek, as you mentioned before the break, you know, th this seems to be um, uh, not only a bit arbitrary from the standpoint of, well, there's plenty of other good folks out there that could also benefit from a little bit of largesse out of the public treasury, clearly a political motivation here. And and. What's particularly, I think, disturbing about this, as it suggests, is the total lack of fairness. Now, you know, I realize that maybe doing right and doing what's fair is is kind of out of uh, um, out of vogue these days. But what of the person who has? enormous student loans that will graduate next year. Well, they're not participants in this program. What about those that have struggled to pay off all of their student loans to great personal sacrifice? Well, they're not going to get a check for $10,000. And, and you know, for all of those that, like myself, managed to go through school and never took out any loans and, and managed to do it through, uh, you know, family resources and just a lot of hard work, well, don't they deserve to get a check as well? I mean, it just seems to be there's... there's 
there's no end to this, which probably goes really to the core of just how flawed the thinking is. There's, well, where do you try when you struggle to apply the word fair to any government activity, you will fail. Yeah, no doubt. There is no... It's, it's inconceivable how... Take that language out of the dictionary and read it. And how do you apply fair? Take anything from tax rates. What is the fairness of people who earn more dollars having to pay a higher percentage of that income in taxes. There's nothing fair about it. It's progressive. What is the fairness of assessing a sales tax at 7% of the cost of milk? That 7% is a greater percentage of a lower income person's total income than a higher income person. Is that more fair or should sales tax be progressive and if so so you just can't do it you can't even begin to apply the word fair the fairness is determined solely by how the electorate treats people who represent them who vote for legislation that's the test of fairness nothing other than that other than if you don't if you try to apply a more objective standard you have to fail. You just can't do it. The word doesn't apply. It's a it's a system where laws are passed by representatives. Their only limitation, the only test of whether a law should be enacted is, is it constitutional? If it is constitutional, then it's allowed to be unfair so long as the person who votes for it gets reelected. So you just can't go there, Craig. You, you have to say it's stupid or it's not consistent with my worldview, and I am not voting for that elected official who did it. There's nothing, any law is unfair because it prevents somebody from doing something or forces them to do something, and does it prevent somebody else from doing it? Take any law on the books from driving when you're 21, is that fair? Why, or drinking when you're 21, there's nothing fair about it, it's all arbitrary. So you don't get anywhere when you start using the word fair in discussing any law. Yeah, the other issue that comes to mind Bob, and that is the, the, the arbitrariness of this that on the surface appears to benefit young people struggling to pay student loan. But but isn't there a direct or a, let me rephrase that. Isn't there, in fact, a, a indirect beneficiary that's kind of uh, quiet behind the scenes, but nevertheless, uh, the, 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 the real the real beneficiary of this economic largesse, and that is all of these institutions. In other words, 
take the individual who is currently studying. He already has a loan to cover some of his student debt. He's going to continue to uh, matriculate through a four-year university and likely take out more indebtedness. What is to prevent any of these universities from saying, well, gee, if they were able to qualify for a loan of X number of dollars, now 10000 of that has been forgiven. What's to prevent us from raising tuitions to take advantage of that extra, quote-unquote, uh, sort of a, a phantom ten grand that then winds up in the quote unquote pockets of the universities and not necessarily the students. I mean, isn't that a real possibility from an economics of all this? It's an actuality, not a possibility. And you said air quotes around them raising tuition. No, they do. You know, Craig, you focused in on as you every time I'm on your show. You do one of those nailing the, hitting the nail right on the head, and this is another example. There are two segments of our economy that have always had price increases hot faster than inflation. Those two segments are healthcare and higher education. You know why? Those are the only two major segments of our economy where the customer has no idea what the commodity costs. Mm, good point. Students who go to college, tuition is invisible. They don't feel it. It doesn't affect their behavior. It doesn't cause them not to be able to afford a car. It feels kind of free. So who gives a damn what it costs? It's kind of free. The same with health care. Nobody who's listening to the show knows how what the retail selling price of a drug is that they have a prescription for, they know it costs them a dollar nineteen after the quote adjustment from the insurance company. So they say, Wow, this is cool, this this drug gets rid of my pain, it costs me a dollar nineteen. Pretty gosh darn cheap. No, it doesn't. It costs a hundred dollars, but you never saw that. So with the student loan forgiveness is nothing other than a wealth transfer from the general public to the university system because they will simply raise their prices again because now, again, nobody cares and there's no control over it. And Craig, if you want to really get kind of cynical, it was pointed out to me that just yesterday, in the New York Times, Bastion of Progressive Thinking, there was a headline that encouraged me. It was a headline, I don't remember the exact words, which talked about student loan, or there's a suggestion that student loan will cause college tuition to increase. And I said, wow, the New York Times is getting religion. They, <laughs> they are now highlighting a bad progressive policy. When you read the article, they, after the first paragraph, they focus on the fact that for-profit universities will now be encouraged to be more dishonest than they have been in the past. So they focused on the issue, but they then, true to their calling, said this is going to affect people who, God forbid, actually make a profit in an activity. Now, of course, college universities make lots of profit. 
they have a positive cash flow, they're choking in money. They just don't call it profit because they are, quote, non-profit. It doesn't mean non-positive cash flow. It's just from an accounting and tax standpoint, it's not labeled profit. But it's more cash coming in than going out, that's for sure. You know, the other issue, too, and we can unpack this a bit when we come back after the break, and, and it, you know, it, it probably bears little more than a mention only because repeatedly it has been demonstrated by both parties, Democrat and Republicans, and as many have heard me say on this program, there seems to be a, a fundamental difference between the two when it comes to spending. One likes to borrow and spend, the other one likes to tax and spend, but at the end of the day, they love to spend money. And, and so here we sit, um, perilously closing in on 31 trillion dollars of indebtedness and instead of finding ways to try and i don't know pay down a little bit of that debt or at least not get deeper in debt now instead the government's figuring out ways to give away money that it doesn't have that it's taken from somebody else to give it to somebody else and what i find problematic with this is also opening up the door to suggest that well if, if and again, as Bob pointed out, there's no such thing as parity or fairness in any of this. But if you were trying to, at least for the sake of, of, of the optics of it all, to try and find some sense of parity, where do we draw the line? Some will argue, well, we've bailed out the airlines, we've bailed out railroads, banks. Uh, why not student loan? And, you know, one of the arguments, I think, for why not is... We don't have the money. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our discussion. Bob Zadek's program, by the way, heard every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. If you want to check out a great alternative to the television talking head programs where you get into the real meat of the issues, and not only the meat of the issue, but also some profound insights as to solutions to many of America's problems today, then check out the Bob Zadek Show. You can get more information about Bob, his books, his program, past guests, podcasts, and all by going to his website. It's easy, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a time out back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, far be it from any Congress to be fiscally conservative, even when we had the so-called Tea Party, a lot of it turned out to be more dog and pony show than anything of substance when it comes to trying to um, address the um, spending habits of uh, folks that wind up in Washington, D.C. Must be the water from the Potomac. I don't know. Something about it. In any event, we're talking about the recent decision, the executive order using emergency powers related to 9-11 and an odd twist of covid which one minute we're being told, oh, it's all over with, nothing to see here. And then the next minute, it's being used as the uh, pretext to forgive up to $10,000 in student loans, twenty grand if you have a Pell Grant. And uh, we're talking about uh, this timing, conveniently just a couple of months prior to the midterm elections. Bob Zadek is with us. And again, his program heard Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock on 8.60 a.m. The Answer here in the San Francisco Bay Area. But you can hear him all over the West Coast. And you can get more information by going to his website, bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. 
Um, Bob, as I mentioned, you know, far be it from Washington, D.C. to uh, not spend every nickel that uh, they can possibly uh, pull through the uh, the U.S. Treasury. Um, that said, be- beyond the, the political aspects of all of this, is, is there any fiscal impact to be worried about? Or is just, you know, whether we're at $31 trillion, what the heck, let's go to 32 or 33 It's only money, right? But any potential negative fiscal impact related to all of this? Well, according to the economists, this will have a a quite material impact on the deficit. Not immediately, because let's remember that the student debt forgiveness just means that income that would be coming in in the future has now been forgiven, which means the effect is only that on future years, when the future years would have enjoyed the benefit of repayment income coming in, now it doesn't feel that. So this is kind of perfect because there is no immediate impact, perfect on progressive politicians, because there's no immediate impact. Uh, The impact will be in future years when somebody else who got elected and didn't vote for the forgiveness or support it is now in office and the person who's then in office will get the blame. That's number one. Number two, uh, I note that earlier in our show you did mention and you complained as you should about the growing deficit. I get a little bit nervous about worrying about the deficit because there are two cures. One bad and one good. One cure is increased taxes. Ugh. That will reduce the deficit, but <laughs> I don't want to pay taxes, nor does anybody else. The other cure is cut back on spending, which doesn't happen because spending is how elected officials get reelected, and therefore I, I would support that 100%, but it never happens. Therefore, since when Congress wants to, quote, do something about the deficit, the only thing that makes political sense is to increase taxes. And they talk about having people pay their fair share, all the usual stuff we hear, which they use to justify tax increases, but it's a tax increase nevertheless. Besides tax increases taking away money from us, taxes decrease our freedom, something I'm quite sensitive to. How does it decrease our freedom? Because it takes property which is ours, which we have total dominion over, how it gets used or spent. The freedom to spend our own money is deprived of us because the money is given to the government who then decides how our money collectively will be spent. So there's a compromise in freedom that every one of us feel but it's in small portions relatively, and you don't feel it quite so much. So, yes, we can complain about the deficit, and a deficit is another form of tax increase, except on future generations, but to me, the only cure, as I said, is reduced spending, which doesn't seem to ever happen, not to increase taxes. 
Well, and the other issue here, too, as we're winding our, our time down together, Bob, and that is that, you know, we, we've heard estimates that, well, with this move, it's only going to be about a, a $300 billion cost uh, to the Treasury. Yes, but if you look at it from the standpoint of what that money really cost, particularly as um, tomorrow and Thursday, the Federal Open Market Committee is going to be meeting, and there is every anticipation, uh, certainly uh, the, the markets are, seem to be feeling this way, that there will be an increase of potentially as much as 75 basis points. So call it a, call it a point amongst friends. And uh, the, the, the cost for that money continues to increase. And so, you know, when money was cheap and the overnight lending rate was basically, you know, zero to 25 basis points, I guess it's easy to get yourself in debt deeper and deeper because money is, uh, the cost to borrow money is cheap. That's not as much the case anymore. And while it can be argued that we seem to be moving back to actually what ought to be more reasonable and realistic uh, uh, interest rates, nevertheless, there is sort of that, that hidden cost here, too, that, that doesn't get talked about when we discuss $300 billion in debt forgiveness. Craig, if you want to remain my friend, you are forbidden to say phrases like only 400 billion. <laughs> Craig, you're not allowed to do that. That reminds me of, when I was living in New York, New York is the only place in the world where people with a straight face can boast that their commute to work was under two hours. And they would boast about it, how lucky they were, because that's their frame of reference. So don't use the phrase only 400 billion with me if you want to hear or see me ever again. <laughs> Fair okay, enough. So much for that. I scolded you. I apologize. If I hurt your feelings, I had to say it. Nope, not at all. As to the hidden tax, you're exactly right. And who benefits from inflation? You know who benefits? The debtors. People who owe money are the big beneficiaries. Who suffers? The savers because their money that they've saved is worth less. But the debtors are the ones who benefit because now money they borrowed, which had a certain buying power, they pay back with the same number of dollars, but those dollars were worth less because of inflation. So seniors, people who are on a fixed pension, now the fixed dollar pension is now worth less. So it's a tax on seniors. Inflation is a tax on people who save at the expense of people who borrow. So it gives all the wrong rewards to all the wrong people. And yet inflation has now become a cornerstone of the Obama administration. And, you know, uh, sadly, we've had a history down through, uh, well, probably not just decades, but centuries of sending attorneys to Washington, D.C. with the argument that, uh, at least subtly so, that, well, they, they're familiar with the law. We're going to send them to Washington, D.C. so they can make more laws. Maybe we've reached the point where instead we ought to be electing CPAs to Washington, D.C., because we could use somebody who actually knows how to sharpen a pencil and run the numbers. Maybe I'm going to send Bob Zadek to Washington, D.C. That's it. A campaign Bob Zadek for president. Certainly can't be any worse than where we're at right now and actually might 
might put the country on the right track again. If you'd like to join my campaign for Bob Zadek for president, we invite you to start out by finding out more about Bob online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. His show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock here in the San Francisco Bay region at 8.60 a.m., The Answer, our sister station. Bob, always a delight and an education to visit with you. We'll look forward to our next visit. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.